and welcome to another episode of The Trading Desk. My name is Joshua Thanos, and as always, I'm joined with my friend and colleague, expert, watch, collector, and salesperson, my <laughs> my buddy, Jason Main. What's up, Jay? Well, it's, uh, it's one heck of an intro there. I'm, I'm well. How are you, my friend? Well-deserved, man. So, uh, yeah, I'm in Florida right now. Jason's in Philadelphia. We're using... Uh, a program called Squadcast to record this. So uh, we're able to see each other, which is nice. And uh, I'm excited to uh, to get on the second episode or to create the second episode of the new Trading Desk podcast, man. So um, let's jump right into it today. Well, so I'll, I'll let you guys know what the topic is today. We're going to be talking about um, watches from the 90s, 90s watches, either brands that started in the 90s, uh, watches that were manufactured and sold in the 90s. And uh I think that you know, in doing my research for this for this episode, um, I was surprised at uh, you know the watches that I came up with, and I didn't realize how important of a decade the 1990s was for Swiss watches. And I think that you know now they're called neo vintage, um, but you know they're only going to be gaining more notoriety these watches as they become like truly vintage. Um, and in the next ten or fifteen years, people are going to start really chasing those watches. But, uh, but yeah, so that's, that's what today's show is going to be about guys. So, um, stick around, but first, as always, we're going to start with our wrist checks. So J bone, Jason main, what do you got on the wrist today? Yeah. In the spirit of, uh, I've been kind of on a uh, honeymoon with my Moser, uh, which I don't think is over yet, but in the spirit of this show, I pulled my watch box uh, out and was looking at some pieces that are actually fit this criteria pretty well uh, that I that I did buy back in the day. Um, so they're actually been with me for a long time. And then a few watches uh, that I bought that are older. Um, so I am currently wearing my PAM 25. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, so uh, now is, uh, to Josh's dismay, the only Panerai in my collection. Um, yeah. Terrible. Uh, no longer Panerai heavy, but I love this piece, Titanium Pam 25 with the hobnail dial. Uh, many, many people love this piece. For me, this is this is kind of like the watch that I've wanted for a long time and always kind of looked for uh, the prime example to come up. And I think it's what, last year uh, I bought this. It was full box papers, literally uh, safe queen, like, you know, original strap, screwdriver still in the box, never touched, like, Really nice example. So happy to have it. Um, this is a K. So I think it's, uh, I think the papers are actually dated 2009. So not, not quite nineties, but getting there. Um, when, uh, I forget K, uh, when we're K's, I, I think 2006, K's, early 2005, 2006, something like that. So yeah. this one probably sat in case, yeah. case for a little while as it was dated for 2009. Um, so yeah, this is, uh, makes sense. Yeah, yeah, retail sales in, in 2008, 2009 weren't very strong, yeah. um, if everyone remembers. But yeah, so that, that's a great watch. So that's, um, that is the second submersible that um, Panerai made once, once they were owned by the Vendome Group, right? So they have the Pam 24, mm-hmm. which was stainless steel. The, you know, full stainless steel, big heavy piece, but you know, 44 millimeter submersible. So it has a rotating bezel. And then, yeah, they, they came out, I think it, that's the, I think the first year that they made the PAM 25 would have been an A serial, right? So that's going to be a 98. So they, there was no pre-A. Um, 
uh, some, uh, you're right, Pam 25. So I guess the same year that the 24 came out. Uh, and I think especially now, that watch is infinitely more wearable than the 24. 24 is a great iconic piece. A lot of people love that watch. It's a piece that's been, it's been in the catalog forever and still is. Um, but, or now it's a 1024, but 25 in titanium is a fantastic piece. I, I love titanium panorize. Um, and I, I think that that is a, that's a great iconic piece and you can find that watch staying along with our topic. You can certainly find that watch from the nineties since, um, the first year that they made it walk, that watch was a, uh, 1998 so that would be an a serial 1998 1999 would be a and b serial uh panerize so if you're looking for a 1990s uh um pam 25 then look for the a or the b serial and um i may may or may not be mistaken but i believe this is the first uh titanium panerai ever made pam 25 um i'd have to have to check i don't what let me see here i think um let's see the pam 77 or the 177 yeah you're probably right 17 yeah i think you are right that is the first titanium i believe they made a pvd titanium which was the 009 but i could be wrong about that i know that was pvd but i don't know if it was titanium so i can look that up um, or maybe somebody okay. listening can look it up too far off. Uh, and I do want to ask, um, obviously mm-hmm. if you're listening to this, uh, we'll have our cell phone numbers and uh, other ways to contact us on the episode at some point, but you, many of you probably already have that information. Uh, Josh mentioned that we're using this new program and, uh, feedback would be great. So any, any kind of feedback from you guys, audio quality, um, you know, how are you liking it? Should we change something that would be uh, most helpful as well? Yeah, absolutely. We always like feedback, good or bad. Um, <laughs> lots of bad feedback out there. How about you? So, um, so my wrist, I have a watch that um, if people remember from the trading desk, I I work quite often. Um, it is truly a 90s watch. It was manufactured in the 90s. And it's my uh, my PAM 002A, hashtag 2A, <laughs> stainless steel, uh, manual wine, time only, um, no sub-seconds, nothing, just just the two-hander, um, and I, I love this watch. This this particular watch has a kind of a funky history. Um, I think I've mentioned the story in the past, so I'll make it abbreviated. But basically, a friend of mine owns a hotel in Jamaica. I went to visit him at the and stay at the hotel for a week, and he said, "Hey, one of my one of my employees found this diving, you know, right off the off the beach years ago. It's been sitting in my drawer. Um, I don't even know if it's real, but if it is, did you want it? And, uh, and you know, he sold it to me for cheap. So I looked at it, um, cracked open that case back, saw it was real. Uh, it was in terrible, terrible shape, um, full of what some would call patina or others would call water damage, um, completely faded hands and dial corroded movement, but it was still intact. Didn't run. Um, it needed some TLC. So I ended up buying the watch from him for a few hundred dollars, brought it back um, with me to the U S and then had our service center take care of it. They were actually, I think um, <clears throat> Mike Michaels took a look at it. Didn't have enough time to put into it, but thought that the, the movement could be salvaged. Um, so we, we did have it sent out and the movement was salvaged. So it's basically uh, there was only a few things that they had to replace. They were able to get most of the corrosion off the movement, but, um, but yeah, I have an original, Pam 002, 
um, no box, no papers. And uh, I swapped out that the hands for, for new hands. So there's loom. So the watches, um, f- from a value perspective, um, it's worthless. <laughs> it's only, <laughs> only what, you know, what I, what I value it for. But um, I think I've been offered like a thousand bucks for it or $2,000, which is, uh, it, it's, it's going to stay in the, in the collection forever. But, um, it, it means a lot to me. I, it was my second Panerai, my first Luminor, um, and I absolutely love it. Fully polished case. Uh, I mean, it certainly has been a bit overpolished. I'll tell you that it's lost some of its lines, but still, I, I love the watch. And I don't wear it as often because I don't want to have to refinish it again or have to replace like the bezel and whatnot. Uh, but when I do wear it, uh, I do love it. So um, yeah, that's on the wrist of Pam 002 and A Serial. Um, you know, there are quite a few of them out there, and the prices, you know, have have certainly come down from the early 2000s where at the height of kind of panoramania. Um, so, you know, both Jason's watch and my watch are, are easily attainable for well under $10,000. Yeah. I don't want to uh, make this episode too much about our watch boxes, mm-hmm. um, but it's funny. Uh, I actually have a nineties watch in my box mm-hmm. uh, that is also from Jamaica. So wow. they're, they're related in that sense. Uh, it's pretty funny. Um, this is a Citizen Nighthawk that I've had uh, since, uh, I want to say, like, 99 when I was in Jamaica on a cruise. And I won some money um, on, on the ship that I shouldn't have and <laughs> treated myself to my uh, first – it's actually a titanium variant that's, um, from my understanding, was a uh, non-U.S. watch. Uh, the watch mm-hmm. only exists in stainless steel in the U.S. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, – a it's going right now because I just took a flashlight to it. Obviously, it's a uh, Echo Drive, uh, but it still works. I don't wear it cool. as much as I probably should, but cool. Yeah, Jamaican. Well, that's watch a topic style. for another for another show. But you know, people do ask me like, you know, what's a good starter watch? You know, I have guys who who you know I found watches through Instagram, and whatnot, and like, hey, listen, I only have five hundred bucks. Which I should I buy an Invicta? And the answer to that question is absolutely not. <laughs> and the, the real answer is there are a million watches that have merit that are a great way to start your collection and, and citizens an awesome place to start, but let's not get off topic. So, all right, guys, that's risk checks. I have my, my Panerai 002. Jason's got his Panerai uh, 25. And uh, so let's get on to the next segment, which um, we started in the first episode and uh, it's basically our week of review, right? So like, you know, if you guys know who we are, we're, we are traders for Watchbox, which is the largest global trading platform um on the planet and uh you know we do a ton of volume deal with a lot of customers we get to see trends and you know we buy probably more watches than than any other outfit that exists and jason and i've been with the company for um the better part of a decade now so you know we have a pretty well-developed customer base and uh you know we get to see kind of what's happening day to day and and you know week to week month to month so um you know, Jay, what's you got anything exciting coming in that, that you want people to look for to hit they're gonna hit the website in the next few weeks? Any any cool sales, any any weird sales that you know you didn't expect? Uh yeah, actually I've a uh, lot of uptick in FP Jorn, which is uh, a little unusual for me. Um you know, there's a lot of guys in our office that sell quite a bit of Jorn. I usually uh, don't. Um and it's not, you know, for any particular reason other than a lot of my clients are working their way there or looking for alternatives. Um, but I've had uh, probably the last month and a half or so with a good part of it being uh, what we're 10 days into this month. Um, 
a good FP Jorn run. So quite a bit of pieces, um, both being looked at. Uh, I have two coming in, um, uh, Octa Havana Loon, uh, which is probably one of my favorite, uh, complicated, you know, as complicated as I would want to own, uh, Jorns, you know, cause the price point for what you get, I think it's a lot of bang for the buck. I have a, uh, a Turbion coming in as well, which undoubtedly is going to have to go right back to Jorn. Uh, for service, just because the nature of that piece uh, was from a collector who never wore the watch, so it literally sat uh, for a couple years. So I'm assuming it's going to need a full service. Um, pretty, you know, I would say pretty solid start to the month. Uh, again, we're 10 days in. I'm probably trending about 15 to 20% over where I should uh, to meet the month. Uh, so, you know, things are, things are bustling. Um, yeah. I think I have 15 watches in. Uh, at the moment. So, you know, bought about 15 pieces uh, so far this month. Cool. That's awesome, man. It's great. Great start of the month. And you see the yeah, things are pretty strong. We, you know, we did see a little bit of a lull last month in terms of trading volume um, as to be expected during the summer. And, you know, it being September right now, we, we expected September to be a little bit slow, but I'm in common, it kind of in the same boat um, though, um, I don't have, I have a few guys asking about Jorns, but you know, when you get into that price point, uh, like the hundred thousand dollar watches for the most part, you, you have quite a few options. Um, so I have, uh, I've actually had quite a few customers and I have deals working on longas. Um, and if anybody sees our website, we have things, things called coming soon, um, listings. So that doesn't mean that we're looking for the watch or we'll, you know, that we'll take an order for the watch. What it means is we bought the watch, but it's not ready to ship yet. Right. So, um, for long, a lot of these complicated pieces, like you said, with the, with the Jorns and, um, you know, Debethunes and higher end watches, uh, a lot of times when we buy them, we'll send them out to the factory for service and then we'll list them on our website as a, as a coming soon. So, um, I sold a Longa Zeitwerk, uh, probably about three or four months ago. Awesome. Um, so customer put, put the deposit on the watch, knowing that it would be out for service for about three or four months. So the watch just came back. And what's crazy is the watch, uh, you know, he paid, uh, X amount of dollars for the watch. Uh, it's probably gone up in value about five to $7,000 since he put it, since he secured the watch at that, at that point. And, and we do see, you know, as the, as we get towards the end of the year, um, you know, spending always goes up anyways. So I'm predicting that there is going to be a little bit more demand. So you'll see a spike in the value of a lot of these watches that people are looking for. And Longa is one that I have a lot of guys selling trading Longa's because, you know, in the past you buy a Longa, if you, if you bought it for say 20 off, you would sell it for, you know, 30 cents on the dollar, right? It would, it would, they would take a massive beating. So really only people who really, really love the watch would ever buy them new um, or guys who never plan on selling them. But now that there is newfound demand in the industry across the board, um, you know, watches from Longa, which they only make, you know, four to 5,000 watches every year. So there's not relatively low amounts of these watches in general out in the market. And, um, you know, we're seeing watches that used to trade well below the retail started getting close to it. So, uh, it's, it's allowing those watches to kind of come free from their original owners, guys who bought them, love them, but, you know, have kind of outgrown them and whatnot are happy now to trade them because they're not taking a massive beating. So I've seen activity in Longa. Um, I have a few customers who are selling, you know, sizable collections. Um, and, uh, I have, you know, obviously there's, there's a recent news. If anyone here is, is listening, doesn't, doesn't know, you know, Watchbox, uh, the company that we work for, 
bought the majority st- a stake in uh, the brand Devatune. Um, tremendous brand, uh, some of the highest level of finishing engineering in the industry only make about 200 watches every year, but traded at like 50% of the retail for the longest time, right? Just kind of mismanaged, had a, had a bunch of issues from that standpoint, because it was run by not so many, not so much business guys, more just watch guys. Um, so hopefully that has, you know, our investment into the brand or the, our company's investment into that brand has, will create some stability, but we're already seeing people feel much more confident in buying those watches. So I've had yeah. quite a few, I know you have as well, Jason, um, people uh, looking to yeah. purchase some, some, you know, Debitunes. Some definite. Uh, I have two of those sales already this month. Oh, okay, great. I have a pending Debitune sale um, for Star Various, but I'm not sure uh, yeah. the likelihood. Star Various is, is definitely um, the one to get. That's what people, I've, all the I mean, inquiries I, that I've, re- I've received are for Star Various. Sure. I mean, I love the brand. I've, Love them for a long time. Um, really, only kind of actually shout out to uh, to our uh, good friend John Callahan, who probably will never hear this, but um, used to work in the same office as us, and is a huge uh, kind of small independent uh, fan, and let me onto the brand five years ago, and yeah, I kind of just uh, fell in love with it. But um, a lot of people don't know that, yet, as you mentioned, the two gentlemen who uh, run the company are more of like creative aspect and not quite businessmen that the company's been on the rocks uh before mm-hmm. and uh this was kind of you know in 2017 like they almost went under um there was a lot of speculation they had to source funding so this is kind of a way to ensure that the brand's legacy lives on and that in it, it has affected the market and there's much more kind of reassurance i think short term probably the next 60 to 120 days a lot of people are kind of waiting to see what happens to the market um, before pulling the trigger. And if you have the money uh, right now, it's definitely the time to buy it. I would say before uh, they kind of either go up. Um, there's really not a whole lot of downside. Anyways, Titan Hawk is my favorite. Um, mm-hmm. And then besides that, any any 28, the Star Bears is really cool too. But 28 with the pivoting lugs, very iconic. Um, yeah, I do have uh, I do have quite a few uh, customers that I talk to on a daily basis that already have David tunes and are happy that we're involved in securing the legacy and the fact that they'll be able yeah. to service the watch and stuff like that. So, yeah, no, I think I mean obviously from our standpoint, uh, I guess we can call us biased though. We tend to be pretty unbiased about things in general, but um, you know, it's I think it's good for the brand. You know, these small independent brands a lot of times are not run by you know forward-thinking business people. They're mostly run by watchmakers and and that's one of the reasons why they're why people love them is that they're you know they sure. they have complete control uh, creative control and as far as we're we understand there's no change in in that aspect to the company whatsoever um it's really just i guess a cash, cash infusion though we don't have too many details on that we unfortunately we did not receive any yeah. any uh debatunes as uh well, I can show you my watch box. Right There's definitely not a David. Yeah, I was hoping that would have been awesome. But um, all right. So, so yeah, guys. So that's that's the week in review. Um, kind of what we're seeing from boots on the ground in terms of the watch market. And uh, so let's just jump right into the uh, the main topic uh, today, which is something that um, I I posted an Instagram message or a story about a week or so ago, asking for any topics that people thought were interesting. And I got like a tremendous amount. So we're going to use these moving forward. But one of them was asking about uh, 90s or neo-vintage 90s watches. 
um, which I thought was an interesting topic. And when I started doing some research, I realized um, how how important the 1990s were to the Swiss watch market and how it, it was kind of a turning point. Um, you know, throughout that decade, there was, uh, you know, a boom in terms of economics and, um, and then, you know, a, a, uh, a step forward towards complicated wristwatches, which really wasn't a thing, um, before that. So then, you know, there's more watchmakers creating brands and taking risks and whatnot. And, uh, and there's there's a whole different there's a whole lot of different watches that you can buy that are from the 1990s that are not outrageously priced. You know, you can when you think of vintage, you think of you know a Paul Newman Daytona for millions of dollars, or some sort of Patek, uh, you know, dress watch that was from the, the 50s or 60s or something like that. But in the 90s, you know, the technology for everyday wrist watches was changing. So now you're having watches that are not like super delicate. Um, you're having watches that are a little bit more robust. And, uh, but you're also having some watches that are very esoteric, um, adding a lot of crazy complications to wristwatches where in the past that the, the overcomplicated watches were kind of reviews or, <clears throat> or kind of, um, uh, reserved for the pocket watches, right? Like, uh, in the nineties, there was, uh, I think a paddock pot pocket watch that was a, like a, a grand complication that sold for like $3 million. And that was like a big deal. I think I found on YouTube, there was a, a, uh, a news story about that from, from like ABC or something. And, and it was kind of like a, an interesting look back now. And, and uh, so it was kind of the rise of complicated wristwatches um, happened in the 1990s. So you have brands like Roger DeWee being created, um, Frank Mueller, um, and then, you know, other brands that were, that were completely outside the, the complications so are more like um, utility watches, right? So you have, uh, Panerai, which is a brand that I love. Um, and, uh, you know, you also have iconic watches from brands like, uh, like Omega. So you have the, uh, you know, James Bond Seamasters, um, that are really easy to find right now and great watches. You also have, um, in terms of the complications, that's right. So I have Parmigiani and FP Jordan. Those are both brands that started in the nineties, late nineties. And then Cartier CPC, uh, was started in 1998. So, um, you know, it was the decade of complications, but it was also the decade of like the beginning of making larger watches as well, which, uh, you know, Frank Mueller was a brand that started with making these large complicated watches, the, the century, uh, curve X case, which was like an oversized case. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there's, there was a ton of, um, of really cool brands. Erwerk also, Erwerk was, was a brand that, you know, very esoteric. Um, and then another one that we'll touch on is, the, the first gen overseas uh, was a was a watch that came out in the 1990s, which I think is a, is a great buy right now as well. Um, but yeah, so let's uh, let's start with my favorite brand, Jason. So if we're gonna if we're gonna talk about um, the casual buyer's guide to 1990s watches, what to look for, what are the models, the um, and the brands, uh, we'll start with <laughs> with a brand that a lot of people hate, um, but people love their watches, don't really like the brand, the brand messaging and the marketing is is not the best, especially right now, uh, but the watches are iconic and that's Panerai. Um, obviously you and I both put our money where our mouth is when it comes to that, uh, that brand. We've, I own multiple Panerai's. I think you're down to one, like you said. Um, but you know, there is merit in those watches. Um, you know, the, the, the watches to look out for would be the pre Vendome. So if you hear that term in Panerai pre Vendome, um, what you're thinking, what, what they mean is 
uh, Richemont used to be uh, branded as the Vendome Group. Um, later on, became the Richemont Group. So um, in the 90s, the Vendome Group bought Panerai as a brand, moved everything over to Switzerland and became started making like full civilian watches. Um, so the but before that, they were, you know, the reason why Vendome Group bought them is because they had a, uh, when they were independent, they created a bunch of these references, which are now called pre-Vendome, but at that time, they were the 5218 models. So there's a whole list of these models. Um, let me pull up my list here so I can talk about it intelligently. Here we go. So the list of 5218 models and um, uh, are going to be, the uh, 5218-201, so that's just basically the logo model. Uh, you have the Marina Militar, the 202. You have the Luminor Marina, which is going to be um, the sub-seconds, uh, and that's the 203. And uh, that, that'll have be a PVD watch. Um, you know, you can go down the list. There's a 205. There was about uh, 10 references that you can look for, most, all going to be Luminors except for the Mari Nostrums, which uh, they – Panerai did a, a re-edition of these Mari Nostrums recently in the last five years, but th these are going to be watches that aren't, they don't look like the iconic Panerai Luminors. They're not going to have a crown guard. It's going to have uh, integrated lugs um, as opposed to like the soldered on looking lugs. Um, it's going to have more of a rounded case shape. They're all chronographs and uh, they have these large, um, large oversized bezels, right? They're graduated bezels. And uh, those are going to be the pre-Vendome pieces. In the past, in the early 2000s, these watches were all selling for absurd pricings, everywhere between like 15000 up to like $100,000 yeah. for certain models and, and full kits. Um, nowadays, you can find them. There's still a lot of asking prices that are all over the place, but the ones that actually sell are going to be in the lower um, tier of that price point. So there is some value in these watches, especially if you can find them uh, with the full set. But they're absolutely wearable watches, right? These are... Durable, wearable watches, mostly at a movements. So easy to, to service, easy to, uh, you know, cheap to refinish and whatnot. And you can still get uh, like case pieces for these watches. So if you buy one, say you buy like a, a 5218-201A, uh, right? So that's just going to be the Luminor logo. I guess it would be the predecessor to the triple zero. Um, full polished uh, stainless steel case. That's essentially going to be the same case that, that Panerai makes today and what you're gonna what you're gonna know is that if you beat the hell out of that watch you're still going to be able to replace parts as of today and it's going to look the same so um you know it is a vintage piece you like and, and in vintage you like to have everything original but if you want to buy one of these just knowing that hey this is a watch that was sold you know pre during the brand's independent phase you can still get these things um totally refurbished, which is, which is really cool. And, and the price points are going to be on the lower end of what you would think of in terms of, uh, of, uh, vintage. Yeah. I mean, and part of my favorite part of like the thinking about neo vintage watches or thinking about nineties watches is the, you know, the eBay search, you know, the stuff that you do at 3am when you can't sleep is like, those are the watches you know, just like any hobby, when you, you know, you're a little bit older, a little, you got some money to burn, you're into a hobby, you start looking at stuff you couldn't afford back in the day, you know, so these, these are the watches that are on my eBay saved list. Uh, so it's fun to talk about, uh, and we'll get into them, but Panerai is a, a great place to start because you can buy, like Josh said, a pre-Vendome piece now where that watch, you know, 
10 years ago, people would say, oh, this is super special and it is still special, but this is a $30,000 example. And since the market's fallen out from the watch, like you can have that watch for 10 grand. Um, Mm -hmm. And maybe back 10 years ago, $30,000 watch was crazy to you, but now a $10,000 watch is reasonable. So it's an excellent place to kind of start. Um, And it's everyday wearable too. That's the other thing, because a lot of these vintage watches, you don't want to wear them every day because you're going to beat the hell out of them. You know, you buy a dress paddock, um, even from like the early 90s, right? They, they're not going to be the most robust pieces. So I, I think that if somebody's looking for like a, a, a lower end way to get into something like this, like a, like a neo vintage piece, Panerai is a great place to start. And then you can even get into the, Vin, uh, to the, to the early Vendome pieces, right? So Panerai, they do something called a millisimation, um, which is going to be... If you look on the case back, you'll see a um, a letter, right? And then you'll it'll have a number slash another number. So that's the millisimation. Um, that letter is going to connote the year of manufacture, um, and and they're they're pretty accurate. Um, I believe it's they actually it's from the summer from one summer to the next, so they, they will bleed into the next year. But if you're looking for say again, if the topic is '90s watches and you're looking for a '90s Panerai, you're, you're pretty safe buying an A or a B serial. Roll, uh, Panerai. So, uh, you know, and, and the references that they came out with, there's, there's about 20 or so references and they added a few, few complications because the proven known pieces besides the Mary Nostrums, all the luminaries are all just going to be, uh, time only or, uh, time and sub seconds, right? So they'll have the, the two handers or they'll add a sub second style. Um, so if you want like a GMT or another chronograph or something along those lines, you can get a an A, which is a, a, a essentially a ninety eight, or a B, which is going to be essentially a ninety nine um, year of production. And again, those watches are even less than the fifty two eighteens because the you know and 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 you can find some pretty accurate counts of how many they made each year uh, if you go to a website, which is one of my favorite websites for Panerai, which is Panerai Source. If you go to PaneraiSource.com and uh, click the link that says Millisimation. It has a list of all the references that they made. Um, they kept count up till up to K. So you know any watches that they made up until uh, 2007, they'll say they'll show you which references and how many of each reference were made that year. Um, and a lot of times these numbers are based off of what was etched on the case. And what people don't realize about Panerai is so say if they said that you know you're you have number whatever 130 of 1,000. 1,000 is how many they intended to make or how many of those cases that they made. That doesn't mean that they actually completed 1,000 of those cases. So a lot of times there's less watches made than what they wrote on the millisimation. So it's always nice when, you know, if you're looking for something that's a little bit more rare and you see that they they listed 4,000, for example, and, you know, 2,000, they said that they made, um, in the year 2000, they made 4,000 of the, the 001s. Did they really make 4,000? Probably not. Um, so that's something to keep in mind as well. But you can find a full list and, and uh, the A and B serials. Um, you can see how many they made of each each model throughout the years. And you can go and you know pick your favorite uh, going through panoramasource.com. Um, yeah, it's a cool yeah, so that, place. That's a great place to start. Um, Jay, I know you have some some other ones, like some, some lower-end pieces that – that should be really easy to pick up in, uh, in from the 90s. 
Um, yeah, I mean, the next topic. So just uh, to touch on Panerai Source, great, great website, and it's definitely helpful. Like I have it tabbed as a permanent thing on my trader desktop because it's you know you're always looking for information like that. So it's it's kind of cool because it's got all the old info. Uh, but yeah, just to touch on um, you know when we first started talking about this topic, uh, as I kind of touched on earlier, the whole like eBay search or the stuff that's like always on my perpetual list of like I've either owned it and would own it again or you know one day I'd like to pick one up if it's right. Uh, type watches falls directly into this kind of like '90s conversation um, because this is where a lot of my interest in the hobby was born. Um, I've been doing this for 15 years, um, but professionally, but uh, actually I guess going on 16 now, but professionally, but I've been into watches since I was tiny, you know, just a kid. Uh, My grandfather was into watches. My dad was into watches, um, you know, not at the level that we are now, but uh, I always grew up looking at, you know, cool Seikos or citizens or, you know, aspiring to that, that Omega, um, so yeah, to answer, uh, the nineties questions like, um, pre bond Seamasters, uh, I think are extremely cool. They have that kind of, uh, monolithic case design that I find attractive from like the space era of the nineties watches. So, um, yeah, in, integrated bracelet, pre bond Seamasters, um, early Bell and Ross made by sin watches like the space two and uh, space threes, or even the Hydromaxes, I think are supremely cool for not a lot of money. A um, couple thousand dollars for a really clean example of one. Uh, obviously the pre bond Seamasters go for more than that, but um, yeah, I mean, the list goes on and on. There's tons of Seikos uh, from the nineties that I love um, SKXs and stuff like that. Uh, you know, Omega, another Omega. That's that's an awesome uh, early, I guess early two thousands or late nineties watch is the X thirty three, which is the quartz. you know I like the yeah. early the the quartz analog digital, uh, which actually I own. I don't own an X thirty three, but I totally would. But I do own, uh, and I think you do still as well. The the Breitling, uh, yeah, Breitling Aerospace, aerospace. The 90s with the bullet bracelet. Yeah, so I you know uh, obviously love that idea. Um, yeah, I mean, this is it's it's a really cool area of conversation because uh, the part I find the most fascinating, like obviously, we could talk about early APs and early paddocks um, and stuff that is sought after. You know, early Jorn thirty-eight millimeter brass movement pieces, stuff that's extremely sought after now, and that's still part of the conversation. But I find the most appealing is the stuff that's still obtainable for cheap. And has that like potential neo vintage uh, kind of rise in the future, and it's for me the part of this hobby that I love and and the, uh, is this stuff means something to me because I can buy it and I like it and it's not necessarily because it's an investment. So when we have this conversation and you start thinking about like stuff that that's from your childhood or from your early adolescence and is really kind of cool and now can be obtained for for not a lot of money. Uh, yeah, a lot of the a lot of the brands we're talking about here are not going to be crowded in terms of demand. So, of course, there's going to be, you know, um, APs from the 90s that are that are now becoming very prominent. People are starting to chase paddocks, whatnot. So um, well, so another the another another uh, we'll stick with sport watches here. So um, we touched on it before, but the first generation overseas 
um, mm-hmm. was launched in 1996, right? So that was really their first sport model watch integrated bracelet, um, you know, a tremendous design. You're going to have the Maltese cross basically just, you know, added to every, yeah. every slap uh, everywhere, everywhere on that watch, right? So the bracelet, the bezel, the clasp, even on the dial, everything. Yale's Maltese cross. Um, the first model is 37 millimeter. Uh, they also, they, they actually released a 35 and a 37 millimeter. Um, and uh, in the, in the time and date variant. And then in 1999, they launched the Chrono. So if you're looking for, for an early or a 1990s first gen overseas, you're looking for the first year would, uh, of the Chrono would still be in the 90s, but you have about four years of production of the, the time and dates. Um, so they had the 37, which would have been the men's size, and the 35, which is they call it the mid-size. Uh, they were a little bit larger. I mean, you and I both had these watches on the wrist. They're going to wear the 37 probably is closer to a 39. And the 35 is going to be closer to a 37 in, in the sense of like comparing it to say like a Rolex, which, you know, bracelet watches, that's kind of what you compare everything to. Um, they released it in a white, blue, black, gray, and salmon dials for the time and dates. Salmon dials are going to be the rarest, uh, but you have, you know, a total variety of, of dials. The original movements also. So again, if you're hunting, for these and maybe you want to get the most rare would be like a salmon dial with the original movement, which would have been the, uh, the 1310 movement. It was a modified uh, Gerard Perigo 3100, which GP at that time was supplying a lot of these um, mm-hmm. companies with their movements. Um, they upgraded the movement shortly after. I couldn't find a great date range. I don't know if there is one that exists where they can say how many of each movement that they uh, produce, but they upgraded it to a 1311 and essentially just made it slightly more robust. Like they thickened the uh, the movement a little bit. They didn't really change anything from, from the mechanics of the movement, but they just thickened it a little bit so it would be a little bit more robust from what I understand. Um, but uh, but yeah, they, that that's a great early, uh, you know, neo-vintage watch. It's going to be a great robust watch. It was, you know, it was made to be worn kind of every day and everywhere, especially at that size right now i mean that's that would be the quintessential you know beach to boardroom or or as danny likes to call it a beach to tux i'm i like the alliteration so beach to boardroom is the way i go but that would be a great watch and and you can find them you know original ones in the low teens right now which they were all made in such small quantities there's only a few thousand of uh, of those models out they made the watch for eight years i believe but it was at at small runs it wasn't you know tremendously popular through retail uh, which is kind of the, you know, always the way that, um, like, uh, vintage collecting always goes, right? So the watches that were not very popular through retail are the ones that become the most popular when it's time to uh, to collect them or when they get to the vintage status. Um, and, you know, a lot of the research I did was found through a website called watchbrotherslondon.com. Say they have a tremendous overview of the first gen overseas that I, I'd recommend you guys to go check out watchbrotherslondon.com like amazing breakdown um, but yeah that's that's another that's a watch right now that we're seeing certain models that are extremely rare where they made they only made a few hundred or so some of the gold models and whatnot are uh, are now starting to pop in like double and triple in, in price but they're still well below the levels of say like the 5711s and, and a lot of these APs so there's there's a value in comparison to some other models that we're seeing even current 
productions, but that's a great watch to start with if you're looking for a 1990s, like a neo vintage watch. Yeah, um, another one would be the, uh, would you like those, the first gens? Yeah, the first gens are cool. They're, it's a, I mean, it's, it's a smaller watch, too small for me, uh, candidly. Mm-hmm. I do like them. I think they, they definitely have that cool, like, uh, you know, nine, straight 90s vibe, which is really nice. Um, they are a little, uh, a little extra with all the Maltese, like you said, but that's, that's cool. I, um, I actually, yeah, I mean, what's funny is like the pieces, like you said, are, you know, low teens. Uh, those are watches that traded for, you know, probably half that five years ago. You know, it's yeah. nobody it's, wants uh, a first gen. They're definitely starting to, yeah, exactly. They're definitely starting to move. Another watch that's an amazing example, uh, kind of right up this alley is the 222. Um, mm-hmm. That's a watch that, you know, is sought after now uh, in many of its iterations. But back in the day, you know, it's it's kind of was just overlooked. Um, but as people start to look for kind of cool, neo-vintage, quirky, integrated sports watches, um, you know, the 222 has also kind of climbed the, the ladder as well. Um, the Gen 1s are, are awesome. Gen 2s, I think, are my sweet spot because, you know, not to get, that's way advanced, but size kind of works perfectly for me but if you're a guy that wears you know 36 to 39 millimeter watches on a daily then the then the gen one's probably perfect you know yeah yeah i think the 222 was a predecessor of the overseas right so that would have been an 80s watch and uh, i'd have to do a little bit more research to find out if they manufacture those in the 90s i love the 222 it's just very small but i probably wear it's it's more of just like a it almost wears like a bracelet where the where there's not much taper between the the actual case of the watch and the bracelet itself. And that's kind of what you see with the first gen overseas where it's like a little bit, there's like an ugliness to it that I love, you know, that's, yeah. And well, I if think you look a at lot the of market, the two, two, two is actually substantially stronger than the gen one overseas and has had a bigger increase in the last two, two to three years from kind of where they sat in the undesirable pile to now being like highly coveted. So I think that the Gen ones are, you know, have that trajectory also because, like we said, everything comes back around. So the two two twos are a little older and they're picking up. You know, the Gen ones will probably pick up here soon. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of opportunity in both. I mean, if you just go on, like, say, Chrono Twenty Four, which is a good place to just see kind of what's listed, the prices are literally all over the place. Like I, ha- I yeah. see, you know, two two two, a full gold two two two. Somebody has list for eighty one thousand next to. Uh, a matter of a men's size, a little bit larger piece, but next to one a full gold, smaller ladies one quartz piece for eighty five hundred bucks. So um, I think that those are due to pop. And then the reference that you'd be looking for uh, for the Gen ones would be like a forty two oh four oh, a forty two oh four two, a forty two oh five oh, and a forty two oh five two. So those are the four references that you'd be looking at, guys. Um, for for these watches. And the one that I would go for, the one I love the most, I think it was the first one I saw and I, it's made such an impression on me, um, was the the full Arabic dial version, the black dial with the Arabics, uh, mm-hmm. the military dial, AP. Um, the uh, There's a 36 millimeter AP. The reference is escaping, my, escaping me right now. They had like a similar dial that at, made at the similar time. But that's the one to get me. Like I see there's two posted Three, there's three posted on Chrono 24 for between 10 and $13,000. Um, and, and I can see that th- these watches could be worth, you know, easily double that um, in a market 
that you know we're, we're experiencing right now. Uh, the salmon dial, I think, is the most rare variant. So that's probably salmon dials are becoming a little bit more popular too. I can see people chasing those. Yeah, um, sure. But yeah, if you if you're trying to get in on something that's not hyped up yet, and that there's a possibility that it will, and it'll be hard to get in the future, and you like the way it looks and feels, it's a great way to go. Um, so then, so we hit some sport watches, some lower end pieces. And the other thing that was like a big, that I found was in my research as being like a big, um, theme in the nineties was like, uh, was esoteric watches. So watches that were outside the norm for before that. Right. So you have Roger Dubuis, Frank Mueller, Erwerk, Parmigiani. Uh, I'd say FP Journal is actually a little bit more traditional, um, but not his complications, but the, the, the styling of the watches, um, but so you ha- yeah, Roger Dubuis, Erwerk, Frank Mueller, and Parmigiani are all brands that were started in the '90s. All have very distinct styles um, and you know different backgrounds. Some similar, right? So you have Roger Dubuis and Frank Mueller were both um, you know well-known watchmakers at the time, and then went off book and made their own brand. So you have let's start with Roger Dubuis, which is a brand I know you have um, a lot of experience with through retail, Jason. Uh, I know you met met with. Uh, now former CEO, who's I guess in charge of Panerai, which we'll move on from that, my my views on that. But um, but Roger Dubuis started in 1995. The man himself was, you know, by all accounts, a very um, reserved individual, not a businessman. Loved watches, loved complications. Um, worked for Patek, made a lot of their complicated watches, and then you know decided to go off on his own. And the first two watches that he released which would be like the first gen um, Roger Dubuis in 95 would have been the sympathy and the homage, right? So if you guys are looking for uh, 1990s Roger Dubuis, look for sympathy cases, which I guess everybody really understands that that's, that's kind of what shaped the brand, right? That's the iconic. Um, that would be like the crown guard for Panerai or the, you know, Luminor for Panerai, the sympathy for Roger Dubuis, but the homage case as well uh, was a, mm-hmm. was a watch that was released at the same time. The sympathy, which is going to have like almost like a, very artistic case. I don't even know how to describe it. Right? It's like a, a stylized square is essentially what the uh, the sympathy very came art deco art deco. Yep. Um, but like a stylized type square, right? Like it has like waves, almost like a, you know bringing notions of the ocean there and whatnot. And then the homage case, which m- looked much more traditional, was actually an homage to uh, a paddock fourteen sixty three. And if you compare them side by side, they're basically they, they look. You can tell that this watch was made as a, a with that with the the homage case was made with the fourteen sixty three in mind. Um, much more traditional, but a larger oversized piece. The dial is really cool. Uh, but those are the watches that you'd be looking for. Uh, what's really cool about those watches is that number one, the, a lot of the sympathy cases right now, um, especially the the overly complicated ones, so like the retro grade perpetuals and whatnot, have already started gaining a lot of interest and have kind of yeah. exploded in value. So watches that used to trade for 25 are now trading for 75, 80 at that point, but there still are a lot of the less complicated pieces aren't chased as well. So you have like the time and date and uh, maybe like a GMT or something along those lines um, is going to be uh, or a chrono, or like just the chrono complication is going to be something that they should be able to pick up at what I believe is a, a reasonable price. The homage cases also their chrono, going to be a chron- chronograph and that's going to be a, a watch that you should be able to pick up at a very reasonable price. Um, and, <clears throat> uh, you know, 
tremendous level of finishing engineering going into those watches. And then also if you can get a full box set, which I loved the first time I ever saw a first gen Roger de Wee, I was, the watches are awesome. They fit great. They just bring it up tremendously. Um, like a, it feels like a rich watch, right? You're like, wow, I can't believe that this yeah. watch is only worth say 20 grand or whatever it may be at that time. Um, but their box sets were amazing, right? So they have like these full leather bound box sets, with a ton of documentation, including at that time, they would take like, I guess, like a Polaroid picture of the watch, which then would be glued to the paperwork. Uh, so if you can find one of those, those are, are going up in value um, kind of on a daily basis. Uh, but there was so much, but it felt like love going into those watches and it like, you know, a lot of touch, even in the box sets, which you don't really see with the current Roger DeWeese. Yeah, some of the early uh, – it's funny you mentioned the box set because it, it very much reminds me of, like, um, the earlier Curvos Avinos. You know, the, the box sets were so – almost almost the beginning thought of, you know, the delivery experience where, you know, some of the newer stuff, uh, the packaging and all that became very important. But these were brands that kind of put it on the map. You know, the packaging – this was the first, like, high horology packaging Um and and they certainly are um, you know doing pretty pretty good now on the secondary market with I mean the homage I like to think uh, you know you call it a homage it's named the homage I kind of like to think that it's like a horological middle finger a little bit um, <laughs> like a little birdie so that it, like if I were to own that watch that would kind of make me smile inside the sympathy uh, there's actually two uh, different iterations between the the way that the crystals cut right. on the sympathy so a lot of people. Um, you know, maybe a little bit of an insider. Some people don't know the uh, the Art Deco-ness or like the very Spanish-influenced kind of uh, case. The original crystal was cut all the, you know, the, the shape echoed the case of mm-hmm. the crystal. So there's some hard lines and some odd shapes. It's actually a very hard crystal to cut and it's expensive. Um, and that's kind of why they got away from it. And then they went to the round crystal, which those are still pretty popular but they're not as collectible or as desirable as the original crystal pieces well, and and the and the um the shaped crystals were i was reading they had issues with water resistance and things so mm-hmm. while they're really great they're less robust than the than the circular crystals and and they added a lot of different complications to the homage case uh which again those are going to be at this point probably 25 to 30 percent less um than the, than the same complication in the sympathy case. But again, beautiful watches. They, they spent a lot of times on their dials, lacquer dials, um, enamel dials, guilloche, um, and just like tremendous design value. I feel like, you know, they have like sector dials that I'm seeing. And, and, you know, again, these are watches that have become more popular. So like, like I'm looking at an homage that I remember I sold for probably like $9,500 in, in full gold back in like 2013 is now, listed for $21,000. So, um, you know, basically doubled, if not more in, in value, but still for what, what you get for what you spend, it still seems like it's tremendous value compared to everything else in the market and what you can, what you can get for $21,000 now, you know, it's hard to find a good Rolex for that price almost. Um, and you know, you can get like a, a super well-finished enamel dial homage in full gold for that price point. Um, so Roger Dubuis is, I think that kind of embodies the the nineties. Um, and in the same breath, I'd say Frank Mueller is going to be there too. Right. So Frank Mueller was, uh, if you, if you talk to a guy like Mike Banjos, cause you and I really weren't, weren't there for that craze, but 
It was a brand that was started in the early 90s, 91, 92. It was a young guy, 33 years old. He was a watchmaker, but it kind of echoes a Richard Mill um, sensation that you're seeing now, right? He was a great marketer, called himself the master of complications, worked for Paddock and a few other brands as well. Um, again, like Roger DeWee, or I guess Roger DeWee like Frank Mueller because it came out first, uh, esoteric designs, you know, the, the Century Curve X was a, uh, was a case design that really didn't accept, uh, didn't exist anywhere else. So these tonneau shaped, uh, cases, but also like kind of bowed and conf- camfered the wrist. So very comfortable, um, an iconic watch that you really didn't, there was no mistaking what it was when right. you saw it on the wrist. Um, you know, oversized as well. And then just jamming as many awesome complications into those watches as possible. So, you know, a little bit more garish in terms of the, the brand identity than a Roger DeBuy and, 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 you know, the man himself, the guy, uh, Frank Mueller, who was again, a young guy lived a kind of a crazy lifestyle, had a lot of issues personally. And I think that that was part of the reason why the brain kind of tanked in, um, you know, into, in the two thousands up until kind of recently. Uh, but you're getting a, a big nineties feeling, right? You have a guy who was, you know, very full of himself, was very talented and was putting his personality directly into the watches. Um, and these are watches now that are starting to come back into vogue. You're seeing the highly complicated early first generation watches uh, starting to really, really pick up in value. But there's still a lot of those watches that those first gens that were that are extremely, extremely cheap, you know, chronos and whatnot that you're going to find for, you know, full gold, gold chronos for, you know, well less than $20,000. Um, that had hellacious retails and and are really, you know, uh, horologically, uh, you know, have a lot of horological value, finishing and engineering for sure. Yeah, I mean, there's so it's one of those things where it's funny. The the master of complication is on uh, pretty much every watch that they make, and you know, ten percent of them are actually complicated watches, um, <laughs> which is funny. But uh, I mean, there are true complications. I mean, there are you know, by retro chronographs and, and stuff like that. Um, Turbions, obviously, but uh, the majority of the ones you're going to find are, you know, either regular chronograph or time only. Uh, obviously they do make, um, you know, they have the crazy hours, which is iconically Frank Mueller, um, where the numbers are located at different parts of the dial and the hands coincide differently. Um, funny, like for me, when you say Frank Mueller and nineties watch, the only watch that comes to my head is the conquistador. That's the watch that, like, I remember seeing back in the day somebody wearing it, and it was like, what the hell is that? You know, like, it, it had – the watches back then had a lot of presence on the wrist and still do, but you knew, you know, kind of to your point, like, you knew what it was from across the room, which, uh, you know, kind of around this time era was was not necessarily the case with most of the other brands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and they – you know, he – if you search, for example, going on to uh, Chrono 24 and you type in Frank Mueller 1990, uh, you're going to see, for example, like a like a, uh, a Ratchapant, a, a yellow gold Ratchapant in the big circular case. It's a funky looking watch um, and it's listed asking 15.5, right? So, you know, you compare that to some other brands that are now very, very popular with the same kind of complication, they're going to be more than double that value. So there still is a lot of value in, in, in collecting these. There is, you know, possibly going to be an uptick in value, but in the end, you know, bots, having to spend less money for something that's really, really great 
over spending more money for something that's a little bit more pedestrian, I think is, is, is a way to go, right? Like I like to spend less money on something that, that is, that I really love that may or may not go up in value in, in the future, but you know, more bang for your buck and, and Frank Mueller, early Frank Mueller's specifically before they kind of lost a lot of their horological value and started just churning out watches based on the name and, and the brand is, is the way to go. And you can get some super funky pieces like the endurance, um, 24 hour dial chronograph and, and funky colors like bright orange. And they have salmon dial Casa, Casablanca's and steel for like less than $5,000, um, which, you know, people start, people are re- really remembering these watches now. And so there's, there's an opportunity for them to kind of go up in value, but even if they don't, they're, you know, you're getting tremendous. They have, they have amazing uh, kind of, you know, to your point earlier, like the branding behind it, the names for the models are, are pretty fun. You know, there's like the master banker, which is, you know, people, people love to remember, you know, the master banker. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, uh, you know, they're, they were well thought out when they were named because they kind of stick in your head. Yeah. So uh, we're coming up to basically the end of this hour. So uh, a few other brands we want to talk about. There's one brand that's starting to get a lot of heat right now um, because it's definitely more contemporary in terms of uh, it's, it's, uh, it was ahead of its time for sure. It's Urwerk, right? So Urwerk was, uh, was a brand that was created in 1997. Um, and, you know, right now, you know, if you compare them, say like MBNF or Debatune, like the styling is going to be very similar. Um, and they, they have, you know, definitely a resurgence right now, but, uh, the, the watches that you want to get from them that were, that were released in the nineties would have been that you are one one It's only made 500 pieces in white gold. There's you are one Oh two, which is a similar case shape. Looks like a basically flying saucer, um, with the wandering hours, which is kind of the, that is the, um, like the iconic, uh, complication from Urwerk and, uh, you are 102 was was an aluminum piece in 25 pieces and uh like that's that's a brand that is you know you can still get something really really cool very low run and from like a true independent brand for well the ur101s i can't find any for sale so i can't even talk about the price points but like it's i found auctions from 2017 where these watches were going in the teens um right now i'd say if i had to guess it'd be probably 50 to seventy thousand dollars for those early versions. And I have guys out there chasing them. In fact, I talked to somebody the other day, he said he bought two of them. He's from Chicago. It's in finance. He bought two Urverts recently. He liked them, but the reason why he, uh, he bought them is because Michael Jordan is a fan and he saw some photos of Michael Jordan wearing them. So he decided that put him over the top because he was a huge Michael Jordan fan growing up in the Chicago in, in the nineties and in the eighties and nineties. Um, and then the last, the last few brands we want to mention uh, would be Parmigiani, which is a brand that was started in 1996. It's kind of in the same vein as the Frank Mueller and the Roger DeBuise. Um, you know, uh, Michelle Parmigiani st- still with the brand, uh, making very wild and weird watches. Um, not always relevant in terms of design. Uh, price points through retail are very high. They kind of get discounted. So, you know, they don't have a lot of brand equity, but there's a ton of value in the brand itself. They make tremendous watches. Most of the, most everything is done in-house. Um, and they are, if you're looking for something that not everyone's wearing, Parmigiani is a great place to look. And again, they, there's, there's a good four year run of watches that were made in the nineties. If you're looking for nineties watches, um, Cartier CPC, again, that was a, that's, you know, Cartier has got a rich history. I just finished, um, reading the, uh, it was like a, basically a biography of 
the company itself written by Francesca Cartier, who's like, I guess like the, the, uh, well, she's a surviving member of the, of the family, you know, it's owned by Richemont now, but a tremendous history in their brand. Really, really interesting. I'd recommend reading that book. Um, but CPC was their kind of hydrology um, house. They, they did it for, for 10 years from 98 to 2008. But you can find some early CPCs and they're also starting to gain steam in terms of price points. But, you know, there's probably some value there if you want to buy one and, and you know, you're not sure if, if you'll like it. It's not a bad idea to buy it. Um, and knowing that you could probably get right back out of it because they're becoming more liquid. Um, and I guess the last one we'd mentioned is one that doesn't really, it's not, it's one that everybody already knows, but Jorn, FP Jorn was started in 1999. So, uh, and those, those early watches have now kind of exploded in value, right? Like there's auction results for over a million dollars for some, some of his yeah. super early pieces. So if, if you're hearing this and just finding out about FP Jorn, it's a little too late there, but a lot of these other brands have merit in, in that, um, in that, you know, 1990s, um, you know, watch, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Generation, I guess. But, um, but yeah, guys, so this, this was our chat, I guess, like a, a, a conversational watch buyer's guide for watches from the 1990s. Jason and I both own watches from the 1990s. Well, I will continue to, I think Icapod was from the 90s also, right? I have to look that up, but I, I, own Icapod. so, um, but yeah, a lot of weird little brands you can find out there in eBay is a great place to look. Um, you can check our website, watchbox.com. We have, uh, plenty of watches from the nineties. We are out there actively collecting, so you can check us out there. And, uh, Jason, do you have any, any parting words here for the episode? This is kind of a fun conversation. I would say that this is, uh, obviously a much, you know, kind of tough, uh, well, I guess time to kind of tough to fit any subject into an hour long conversation. Um, but you know, this is definitely room for maybe a part two. Um, I would, I would love to uh, kind of expand and, and maybe dial in. And again, this comes back to like feedback from you guys, but dial in on like, do we go into specific references and specific models? Or is that too tedious? But I think there's some room for kind of exploring this further. Uh, I personally, uh, you know, don't know if you could tell, but I personally love watches from this era, um, you know, kind of late nineties to early two thousands is kind of my, uh, my fascination began with the watches. So yeah, I love the space. I think there's a lot of room for guys to start collecting in this space and buying some stuff that they think is cool, which is really where this hobby starts for, for at least me and a lot of people. Um, I know Josh, you know, you, you love watches that you personally connect with and have stories and think are cool. Um, and it's not, you know, contrary to maybe some people's opinions, it's not necessarily always about what, you know, the watch is going to trade for later. So yeah, I agree. Well, one we could probably do an entire episode just on nineties, nineteen nineties Rolex and Tudor, uh, which we maybe we'll do. But um, but yeah, man, this was this was fun. Thanks for taking your time to, to chat with me, Jason. Um, guys, if you uh, if you want to hear more of these episodes, check us out on iTunes and Spotify and anywhere where you can find um, your podcast, Trading Cast, Trading Desk Podcast with uh, myself, Josh, with Thanos and Jason Maine. You can follow us on Instagram. Uh, we're always going to be looking for new topics and you can engage with us there. I'm at Mr. Thanos, M-R-T-H-A-N-O-S. Jason is at Evo underscore watches, E-V-O underscore watches. Um, and then also follow our, you know, the company Instagram at Watchbox. Our, our YouTube channel is just full of amazing content. We have some weekly shows that you should definitely be checking out. I know I do. Every week I watch, uh, you know, wake up with watches with, with, um, 
with Tim Masso and the uh, uh, Market Wrap with with Mike Mangers, which I've been a guest on as well. Amazing show. So guys, follow us on all these channels. If you have any questions and want to buy or sell a watch, give us a shout as well. And uh, I guess uh, we'll see you next see time. See you on the next one. Adios. Signing Thanks, out. guys. Bye-bye.